0: Genesis 2 is where we are. The story of love uh, remains the most powerful story in human life. From Shakespeare to Taylor Swift, uh, across literature, filmmaking, and pop music, love stories play a major role in the kind of mental and emotional architecture uh, of humanity. The famous writer Anton Chekhov said, he and she is the machine that makes fiction work. Okay, this morning we're we're talking about a love story. We're talking about the mystery of marriage. Now in our passage in Genesis, uh, we will witness the first wedding ceremony and the first marriage. Now I know that when topics like this come up, uh, there's kind of a groan that bubbles up in some of us Uh, because we're afraid of what might be said in a sermon like this. Now, we know that we have both married and unmarried in the church, and sometimes churches can so overemphasize marriage and families that maybe the single people wonder if they have a place uh, here, if they can belong in the church. And so let me say clearly, you know, up front, you are not less of a human or less of an image bearer or less of a disciple if you are single. No, not at all. But I also want to add that my desire for us as a church is that we love each other, uh, which means more than just being sensitive. You know, it's easy to let sensitivity cause us to dance around difficult topics or avoid ever talking about things that may highlight a pain point in someone's life. And I don't want to do that. I want us uh, to, to not avoid tough topics, but to figure out how to love each other while talking about them and in the midst of them. In our pain. So, we're going to talk about marriage this morning. And yes, there are some people in our body who are happily single. There are some in our body who are unhappily single. There are those who are happily married. And there are those who are in troubled or difficult marriages, and others who feel like their marriage is on life support. And my hope is that by digging into Genesis 2 together this morning, and seeing what God has said and done with regards to marriage, that we might all be given hope for how he might be at work in our lives where we are at. So no matter your marital status this morning, I want to encourage you to stay engaged and to be open to what God might have to say to you this morning through his word. We get to go behind the curtain as it were. We get to go back before the fall, before the entrance of sin into the world, before you know, the pain of divorce and broken marriages, before the pain of death and abandonment. And we get to examine marriage from the perspective of its origin. We get to see what God intended from the beginning. And then, after seeing that, we're going to get sent back uh, to our time and place to rethink how we engage with this topic in our world. So let me show you our outline, and then we'll read and dive in. Uh, We're looking at the mystery of marriage. It's going to come at us in four points this morning. We're going to see the moral. We're going to see the mate. Then the meeting. And finally, the mystery. Okay, the moral, the mate, the meeting, the mystery. I know you're thinking, the real mystery is how you came up with all those M words. And believe me, as a man who likes alliteration, I tried other letters. This was the best I could do. So thanks for bearing with it. All right, let's read Genesis chapter 2. We're reading verses 18 to 25 this morning. Let's hear what the word of the Lord says. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. We thank you for your word. And God, I I just ask now for your help as we unpack this together. God, would you speak to us? We need your Holy Spirit to comfort. We need your Holy Spirit to convict. We need your Holy Spirit to enlighten us and open our eyes to your truth. And so God, do that now in this time that we have together as we try to dig into your word uh, this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's dive into the moral. The moral, we start off with verse 18. Our passage this morning begins with a declaration from God that serves as the foundation for what he's about to do. He says, it's not good that the man should be alone. But this declaration, this moral, has behind it two kind of important backdrops or or coordinates that sit behind it. So first, if you were here last week, uh, you might remember that we talked about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden. And we said that that's a symbol of God's comprehensive moral knowledge. That God is the one who knows the totality of right and wrong. And he is the one who has the prerogative to teach us what is right and wrong, good and bad. And just like last week, in our passage this week, we see God teaching morality. He's teaching Adam. See, far from withholding moral knowledge, again, we see God instructing Adam on what is good and what is not good. Now, the second kind of coordinate in the background of our passage is chapter one. Throughout chapter one, we heard over and over again, God saw that it was good and just repeats, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was very good. Then we get to this point in chapter two, and God says, it is not good. That should just jump off the page to us like, whoa, what is this thing after his good creation that God declares is not good? Again, here's the moral. It is not good that man should be alone. Now, in just a moment, we're going to see more of what he means specifically with regards to Adam. But we can pause here just for a second. Because this this moral actually establishes a massively important foundation for the rest of the Bible. Humans are meant to live in relationship with others. Humans are not meant to be alone alone. And humans are not meant to live as if they are alone. If you were here last week, this is kind of further contradiction of the spirit of our age. We are not autonomous individuals left to step out into the world seeking our own selfish satisfaction with our own selfish creativity. No, God says that's not good. Now, I've quoted him before, but he's just too good, so I'll quote him again. Helmut Tieleki. He says, We love to ask, how can I be happy and find fulfillment? But this is really a question put the wrong way around. Why? Well, the question emanates from the assumption that I am alone in the world. But God says it's not good for man to be alone. Let me just pause there. What's he saying? He's saying, this question is the wrong way around because it starts with me as if I'm alone in the world. But he says there's this remarkable fact about life that that we don't get happiness and fulfillment from pursuing happiness and fulfillment. So he goes on. He says, on the contrary, we get these only when I do not think about them and devote myself to something else, to another person or to a task. In short, when I serve and love and then both do not think about myself at all. Now, Tinoke, he's brilliantly connecting Genesis kind of to to the seeds of Jesus' teaching that comes later, that if you seek to find your life, you'll lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We were made, excuse me, we were not made to be alone, serving ourselves and our own needs. We were made to be in community and giving ourselves for the sake of others. Now again, this is so counterintuitive, we may miss it. But God's moral, God's declaration, it is not good for man to be alone, well, this is a a revelation of God's character. He's he's telling us what he is like, which is self-giving and not selfish. Now, it's easy for us to hear that declaration, it's not good for man to be alone, and mistakenly think that that gives us license to resolve it selfishly. Do you see the distinction? God does not give us permission to satisfy our desire for community and companionship in any way we see fit. No, that turns things upside down. The moral, as we'll see, sets up God's provision of and parameters for sexual union and marriage. Okay, there's the moral. We can turn now to God's solution to this not good condition. So let's talk about the mate. The mate, verses 19 to 22. In response to it not being good, God is going to provide a mate. God's going to give Adam what he calls a helper fit for him. Now these words have roiled some feathers over the years. Some people hear them suggesting that women somehow are simpering and frail servants. But that misses the point completely. The meaning of helper fit for him is complementary companions. The word helper, outside Of Genesis, outside this passage, it's always used for military help. And often it's used in reference to God himself. You might think of the Psalms. He is our help and our shield. This is strength and power. Rather than being a figure of weakness and servitude, it's that of indispensable strength and support. The Old Testament is full of heroic women influencing history, exercising personal agency, and displaying a range of godly virtues. Women are not bit players in, dra- in the drama of redemptive history. They are examples of strength, courage, and resourcefulness as God created them to be. Now the second half of that phrase, fit for him, it carries the idea of corresponding to or complementary to, could be literally translated like but opposite. We might think of, you know, like hand in glove or lock in key or shack and Kobe. Okay, maybe not the last one. You can forget that one. But God sets to give out Adam, a helper fit for him, to give him a mate. However, God's going to give him this mate, but God begins with this funny tour of the barnyard first. We get this, this parade of animals, which is kind of comical, but it's a setup for the climax of the passage. Now get this. We do not know if Adam was lonely. We don't know if he felt isolated. The text never suggests a psychologized problem, no. There's no record of man complaining to God that he was alone. And he may not have even recognized it. But God does. God sees the situation. He sees the scenario. And God declares that man is alone and it's not good. And then he shows Adam by marching the animals up to him. (laughs) So that Adam can, can inspect them and study them and look at them and then name them. And through this process, God's declaration is confirmed. So we read in verse 20, after he inspects and names all the animals, verse 20 says, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Verse 20 tells us that this naming ceremony, it did not turn up a mate, which leads to God making the woman in a special act of creation. So God makes the woman for Adam, brings her to him. And we see that, that well, woman is a gift to the man. And when Adam beholds the woman, he cries out, at last! You know, all the livestock, all the birds and all the beasts, they were not bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. But here is one who is like me. Adam recognizes the, the, the sameness, that these two go together in ways that he didn't go with the animals. He recognizes the sameness but also the difference because, he says, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Adam recognizes both the likeness and the unlikeness, the shared humanity but also the gift of sexual difference. Helper fit for him means between the sexes there is complementarity and difference. We are made for each other even as we are made different from one another. Now, this is where we begin to understand more clearly what God meant when he said it is not good for man to be alone. Certainly that statement points to our social and relational nature, our need for community and selfless expression, but it also means more than that. It goes farther. Because the answer to man's aloneness is a woman and this has important natural law implications. Okay? God didn't create Adam sexless. He didn't create generic human beings. He made male and female. One writer says, another man could have helped Adam till the soil. Another man could have provided relational respite and energy for Adam. God could have gifted Adam a plow or a team of oxen or a fraternity of manly friends, all of which would have been useful, even delightful. But God didn't give Adam another man. He gave him woman, a helper fit for him. Like, but different. Corresponding complementarity, specifically in their bodies. In answer to Adam's aloneness, God creates sexual difference. Now, there's all kinds of differences. We can look around the room and see. There's all kinds of differences among human beings. Differences in size, temperament, gifts, complexion. These differences can help create you know, fruitful, vibrant relationships and communities. But as Abigail Favalli writes in her book, The Genesis of Gender, she says sexual difference is a particular kind of difference because it's a difference that is arranged purposefully to correspond to the difference of the other. A body that is designed to fit another kind of body in an entirely unique way, maleness, points towards femaleness and vice versa. She goes on. There are all kinds of difference among human beings. Only sexual difference, however, is capable of bringing another human being into existence. The one flesh union between man and woman is not exclusive, facing inward and closed off to others. Rather, it's expansive and open because this union alone has the potential to create new life. It was not good for man to be alone because by himself he could not be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, which is the mandate we saw back in Genesis one twenty-eight. Now we could say, for all of this, that, that Adam is like many elementary school kids, okay? He learns about sex by first going to the zoo. And then he looks at himself and he looks at the woman and he realizes, whoa, you know, he realizes what's going on, what he has in front of him. Genesis affirms a balance of sameness and difference between the sexes. Now, it's a delicate balance. It's it's, it's difficult but necessary to maintain. You know, most theories of gender, they lose this balance. They veer off into one extreme or another. Either, you know, uniformity and androgyny, that men and women are interchangeable, they're just the same, or polarity and opposition, Men are from Mars, women are from Venus, and they're going to be at odds for the rest of eternity. No, no, we need to somehow maintain and hold together the delicate balance. Both extremes lose the fruitful tension expressed here in Genesis. Now again, this is so foundational and so important to get a hold of because our world, we know this, our world out there has absolutely no idea about what it means to be male and female. So much confusion, so much pain, so much hurt, because we don't know. We don't know what to, to say masculinity is. We only know to call it toxic. We don't know what femininity is. We, we, we just don't know. But let's, let's connect what God has given Adam, intimate, to the moral that he declared earlier. Okay, God's gift of woman is driven by his creative intentions, and it's not driven by Adam's desire. We are so steeped in our culture that we don't even realize sometimes we internalize ideas and worldviews that run contrary to God's creation and his word. We don't realize that on issues of sexuality and gender, many of us are more Freudian than we are biblical. In our world, we talk about desires with words like orientation, and we might believe that these desires cannot change. And then we allow ourselves to claim them as identities, as the, the, the truest thing about someone. We think these desires are immutable. But friends, only God is immutable. That word means unchanging. Only God is unchanging. Now, in all the confusion about sexuality and gender, we need to see that God does not make us into generic humanity to be defined by our desires, but rather from the start, we are male or female. Our maleness or our femaleness, it's not extraneous or dispensable to our humanness, but it constitutes its very essence. Every cell of our bodies is coded male or female. It's stamped either XX or XY. As one writer said, biological sex, far from being incidental or malleable, It carries with it its own sense of oughtness. Now, I know (laughs) in pointing this out, I'm obviously running afoul of our loudest cultural dogmas in the world. But I think it's necessary to try to be as clear as we can. See, we, we talked about this last week. We're neither able nor do we have the authority to create our identities based on how we feel about our experiences or our desires. So, we should not concede to cultural categories and conceive of people as being, you know, their true self is either, you know, straight or gay. No, humans are not their sexual desire. We shouldn't conceive of people as being cis or trans. No, humans are not whatever gender they want to present or identify themselves as. Humans are created by God as either male or or female, with intrinsic ways of living that are either faithful or unfaithful, righteous or sinful, as they correspond to that maleness or femaleness. Okay, can of worms, let's get back to our passage. God declared that it's not good for man to be alone, and so he made a helper fit for him and presented her to him as a gift. God gives woman to man, and God gives man to woman. And when they are given to each other, we get the gift of the institution of marriage. So let's turn there. We've seen the moral, the mate. Let's go now to the meeting, verses 22 to 23. At the end of the parade, God brings the woman he has made to the man as a wonderful gift. And Adam cries out, at last! Finally, the two meet. And he not only names her woman, but he names himself in relationship to her. Up to this point in the Hebrew text, the man has been called Adam. Okay? He was named in relationship to the ground, to the Adamah. But here, he names her woman, Isha, because she was taken out of man. Ish, first time man is called that in the Bible. Humanity's first recorded words in the Bible are a love poem in which a man praises his wife, and finds in her a new sense of calling for himself. She's woman, I'm man. She's wife, I'm husband. This meeting turns out to be a wedding ceremony. And what follows in verse 24, it's a a fascinating editorial comment. I know some community groups are talking about, wait, how are we talking about mothers and fathers when these are the first humans? Well, it's an editorial comment reflecting back on Adam and Eve. And the author looks back at Adam and Eve at this moment, and he says, for this reason, therefore... Because of these two, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Maybe you've heard those words you know, spoken at a wedding ceremony. They're God's definition of a marriage. One man, one woman, leaving behind their upbringings, covenanting together to become one, and giving themselves to each other to become one flesh. Now, there's some interesting parts of this definition. In a patriarchal culture, where we just read that the woman was made to be a helper fit for the man, maybe we would expect that the woman has to leave her family and join the man. But no, it's the man who leaves and cleaves. Because this is a new thing being created in this marriage. The phrase, hold fast, it's language of covenant commitment. It's used for for the people's faithfulness to God and vice versa throughout the Old Testament. There's a call not just to physical union, but to covenant commitment. The one flesh language not only depicts the conjugal act, but also shows God's intention that marriage be monogamous, a complete unity with profound solidarity. And so the examples of polygamy throughout the Old Testament, we realize these these are diversions, aberrations from God's intention. They're not good. The joy and peace of the marital union is further expressed in the fact that they are naked and unashamed. The sexual union of male and female, which alone can produce life, is set by God within the context of marriage. Okay, we see clearly here from the biblical text, before the fall, before all the bad human examples of broken relationships and polygamous families and adultery, before all of that, behind the curtain, as it were, we discover God's intention for marriage. God created humans in his image. He put them in this world with a job of being fruitful and multiplying and exercising dominion as stewards over what he's made. And here at the beginning, he organizes them with the marriage relationship. Despite our tendencies to turn the covenant into a contract, despite our tendencies to sinfully distort the relationship, despite all the ways we obscure or pervert or cast dispersions on the institution of marriage, here it is at the beginning. One man, one woman, holding fast in covenant fidelity for life, sexual expression being reserved only for that context. That's marriage, according to the Bible. Now, from this passage... Okay. I cannot teach this morning everything that the Bible has to say about marriage. The, the Bible's big book, there's a lot in there, Really great stuff for our marriages. Um, but we can see some things from this passage for us okay, that are worth noting. So first, if God's declaration at the beginning, if that's more about being selfless than it is about fulfilling our desires, well then it helps us better understand and approach marriage. Marriage is about more than just addressing my loneliness or gratifying my sexual urges. Marriage is not something I get to define for myself or redefine in culturally celebrated ways. Marriage is an arena for self-sacrificial love of others. Now I'll repeat what we said earlier. God does not give us license to satisfy our desire for community and companionship in any way that we see fit. No, that turns things upside down. God sets parameters for these things. And in our marriages, as in all relationships, we have before us a real person. There's a real person here. But if we approach him or her with our needs or our desires in mind, what happens is we treat them instrumentally. We treat them as things, as a tool. We won't treat them as a human being, a husband or a wife or a friend. We will treat them as a tool to be used to perform a function. Perhaps it's the function of erotic satisfaction, or the function of an emotional sounding board. Perhaps the function of providing for me financially, or at least supplementing me financially. Or perhaps the function of a, a helpful childcare provider, or the function of a trophy for social occasions, or the function of a cheap housekeeper. If the other person is only good for for fulfilling my desires, then I really have no fellowship with him or her of the kind that God wants. If we approach marriage with the goal of having our needs met, well, then the other person no longer, when the other person no longer serves that function or no longer meets those needs, well, then, of course, we can discard them and seek out someone else who will fulfill that function. But that's not marriage as God designed it. The second thing that we can see from this passage is that God, God has a good in mind. When God says it's not good, he has, a, he has a good in mind that he's thinking about, that he wants for Adam, that he wants for Eve. And we move towards that good to the degree we receive gift, uh, the gift of marriage as he intended it. Now, if that's true, that there is a good beyond my needs, beyond my desires. Well, that provides tremendous hope for all of us, despite our marital status. So, think through potential people in our body. Some of us are happily single, unconcerned with whatever good might be in store for us. This passage does not say, you must get married as soon as possible. No, no, no. But it does say, run after God. Run after God and the good he has for you, And be open to whatever means, whatever gifts he brings your way. Don't close yourself off to the surprising ways God meets particular needs that we weren't even aware of ourselves. Some of us are unhappily single. And we hate sermons on marriage because it preaches something we want that we don't have. This passage says, God knows what you need. And he has a good in store for you. You are called to be faithful today, today. You're not called to be you know, celibate for your whole life. No, 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 you're called to be chaste today, each day. And he will give you grace for each day. If you think to yourself, I can't do this, I can't do this my whole life, you don't have to. You only have to do it today. And flee to God, he will give you grace for today. You don't have to go outside of his ways You don't have to circumnavigate his design to meet your own needs. No, you just need to seek him today. This also applies to any who find in themselves unwanted sexual desires. Now, God's design could not be more clear throughout the Bible. Your calling is to be faithful to that design. Chastity in singleness, fidelity in marriage. God will give grace for today and you don't know what he will do tomorrow, okay? But you can know that whatever it is, it's to bring you towards his good for you. We don't know how God will work in our lives. Some of us will have besetting sins our whole life, and we're gonna be waiting for eternity for, for God to finally completely heal us. Some of us, God works miraculously in us now or over a process called sanctification. We don't know how God will do it for us, but he'll give you grace for today. For those of us who are in difficult marriages, God has called you to fidelity, to faithfulness, and to love your spouse while he brings you towards his good that he has for you. He has not consigned you to a life of suffering. No, but he has called you to be faithful today. Today. Again, you don't have to find in yourself a strength for a lifetime. You don't have strength for a lifetime, but he'll give you grace today. For all of us, married, married, And unmarried alike, we, like Adam, can rejoice in the gifts that God brings us because we know, well, we know that he knows what is best for us, even when we don't. And when we receive from him, well, then we can live faithfully along the grain of creation by enjoying those gifts the way he intended. All right, we've seen the moral, the mate, the meeting, Let's turn finally now to the mystery. Verse 24. At the very end of our passage, okay, verse 25, the narrator shows how good he is at storytelling. Okay? Because the final verse, verse 25, it's actually a little foreboding. The ESV smooths over the language when they translate it, but but the Hebrew literally reads, and the two of them were naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now, The verse before, there's supposed to be one. but We're told verse 25, there's two. One commentator points out, the first couple are two, not one flesh. And their obliviousness to their nakedness is darkened by the foreshadow of the moment about to be narrated in which their innocence will be lost. See, we know the fall's coming. (laughs) This is, is the high point of creation with the beautiful marriage of man and wife, but it's the final scene before the fall. But the fact that everything goes wrong, that's not the mystery. Okay? We know from our Bibles and we know from our lives that everything goes wrong. Okay? The mystery is how God will achieve his good despite the bad that will unfold. And this mystery, it remains hidden until Christ comes. But when he does, okay, we read in Ephesians 5. Paul offers teaching to to husbands and wives how to to live Christianly, how to glorify God in their mutual submission. But as he unpacks things, he says something amazing, (laughs) okay? He quotes our passage. He quotes Genesis 2, 24. And Paul says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he says, verse 32 of Ephesians 5, uh, Tiffany, if you want to throw it up, it'll, it'll come on the screen. He says, talking about verse 24, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This is indeed profound. Marriage, the first marriage, and every marriage after it, man and wife joined together, becoming one flesh, that is a picture of Christ and his church. That relationship is a picture of Christ and his church. Paul is interpreting Genesis for us. And what Paul is saying is that God created humans, male and female, who would unite in a one flesh union in covenant marriage, the two becoming one, so that the world would have a category for understanding the relationship between Christ and his church. It's crazy. God gave us this wonderful gift of marriage, this particular type of relationship, so that through it, we can demonstrate to our friends and our family members and to the world a little bit of what it means for Christ to love his church. It's wild. And it's what Paul teaches in the rest of that chapter. Go home and read Ephesians 5. It's a great chapter. But here's the mystery. Marriage is about Christ and his church. To put it differently, we could say the gospel helps us understand marriage and marriage helps us understand the gospel. We can look to the gospel and then reflect on our marriages and say, our marriage is supposed to be like that. But then we can look at our marriages and say, whoa, the the gospel is kind of like this. The gospel helps us understand marriage and marriage helps us understand the gospel. This is the mystery of our passage. It isn't revealed for generations and generations until Christ comes but once we see it, it forces us back to our passage to reread and reinterpret everything that we've seen. It's kind of like those movies from when I was in high school, The Sixth Sense or Usual Suspects. I don't know if you saw these movies. They have a big reveal at the end. okay? And and at this big reveal, then the viewer is given a series of flashbacks. It kind of like rewinds the movie and it shows you scenes again, all the clues along the way. And you're like, whoa, what just happened? Like now I am re-watching this movie, like fast forward and, and realizing what it means, all the stuff that I missed along the way. The mystery has been revealed. Well, likewise, we are sent back to reread our passage. God says, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And then, you know, we see, whoa, 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 the triune God in eternity past, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They determine, let's, let's plan the creation of the world that there might be a people united to the Son. Whoa. We read, therefore a man shall leave his father. And then then we see, whoa, Christ leaving the comforts of heaven, leaving his father to take on flesh and pursue his bride and become one with her. And we read Genesis 2, and we read about a man, and God's life-giving breath or spirit is there. And and there's a pierced side, and there's a death-like sleep, and the building of a bride. And we hear undertones of salvation. And the church. But not only does this mystery send us back to our outline, it sends us back to the whole Bible. We start rereading the Bible, we come across these stories, and all of a sudden we realize why fidelity is so important to so many stories in the Old Testament. We suddenly are scandalized by the countless failures of God's people because we see ourselves in those pages. We realize that's me. And we suddenly reevaluate, you know, the celebration of marital love and the erotic poetry of Song of Solomon. You know, why is that book there? But we realize, well, because our own celebration of that love is also a symbol of the greater love of Christ and his church. We realize why the prophets so often compare the people's faithlessness to adultery. Because we see God was indeed coming after his people like a husband seeking out his bride. See, friends... <laughs> God had a good in mind, a good that led him to create a people for himself. He had a good in mind that led him to weave into the fabric of creation, the marriage relationship, that we might have a picture, a category by which we can understand, not just his relationship, his love for his people. God had a good in mind of uniting himself to a people who would require redemption and salvation that could only come at the cost of his son. And that good unfolded. And that good will be realized in the end. And so for all of us, the mystery of marriage sends us back not just to reread our Bibles, but to reread ourselves. It causes us to rejoice that even in the imperfect human expressions of marriage, we are given a picture of his love for us. And through these imperfect marriages, he invites us to show the world what he's up to. The gospel helps us understand marriage, and marriage helps us understand the gospel. See, it's not good that the man should be alone. Therefore, the Son of Man has left his Father and held fast to his wife, that they might become one. To the glory of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let me pray.